0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. So this is an episode of the Ezra Klein Show I've wanted to do legitimately since we began the show. Alice Rivlin is the, I would say, queen budget wonk in in Washington. I think anybody who covers healthcare and budgets and tax policy and just fiscal policy in general has probably spoken to to Alice not just once but but many times over the year and really profited from that. And she has just an amazingly not just interesting history but she's really shaped how budgets get done and how economic policy gets made in Washington. She was the first director of the Congressional Budget Office. And and she tells that story in this podcast. And it's an amazing story, both as a look into the sexism of the time and the culture of Washington at that moment. But the Congressional Budget Office is one of those organizations that is not well known outside Washington or outside sort of super news junkies. But it has a tremendous effect on on, on people's lives. It has a tremendous effect on how how legislation actually gets written, because what it does is that when legislators want to create something like the Affordable Care Act or a highway bill or anything, they know they're going to need to send it to the Congressional Budget Office or the CBO to get a cost estimate. And if they want a good cost estimate, because they, they, they do, they want something that says it's not going to be that expensive so that they're not going to have to cut too much spending or add too much to the deficit or raise too much in, in taxes to pay for it. If they want that estimate, they have to build the bill in ways that the Congressional Budget Office is going to certify as being responsible or putting away the value judgment of responsibility as saving money. And so the CBO ends up really being an important driver of how legislation looks at at the sentence and provision level. It is a organization that its culture and its approach is very much shaped by Alice Rivlin when, when she was its initial director and she began to bring it and create a model for what it has become today. So I'm really appreciative. Alice spent a, a bunch of time with me talking through that story and, and talking through more generally her path to Washington, her background in economics, the way she thinks about budgets and and, and fiscal policy and Washington more generally. It's a great episode. It's a really interesting conversation if you are interested in how policymaking actually works and how policymakers actually think. She has done Everything you can imagine in this town from working with the Federal Reserve to leading the Office of Management and Budget to being a major and important think tanker to being a key member of the fiscal commissions that come around to Washington every couple of years. So she's a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge, which she shares here uh, for, for all you policy junkies out, out there. I think this is a really fun episode and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get to the interview, I have my, my normal three requests for you. One is to share this podcast with people. Uh, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, go on Snapchat, tell people you enjoy this. You can use email. You can actually use your voice and tell people you meet in your everyday life that, that they might enjoy it too. But but please, if you're enjoying it, spread the word. It, it, it's a huge help to me. It really allows the podcast audience to grow. And, and I, I'm really grateful for it. Second is to, to listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, which is an all-policy all the time podcast with my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. I think if you're enjoying this, you will enjoy that. And finally, rate us on iTunes. Email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with feedback on this episode and guest ideas for the future. Many of the guests on the show have been suggested by all of you. You guys have great ideas on this. I, I do read those emails. So please keep them coming. Alice Rivlin, it is a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited we get this chance to talk. I haven't seen you for a while.
2: No, that's right. And I'm excited to be
1: here too. So I thought that we'd start a little bit at the beginning here. Tell me why you became an economist.
2: I became an economist in college. I was, thought I was a history major. And I still love history. I'm reminded all the time how much I like history. But when I encountered economics in a first-year course, I thought, well, this is really more useful. I can imagine it affecting something. And history is all about the past. So I became an economics major and... Uh, went on from there. What was it you saw
1: in economics that, that felt useful to you?
2: It was public policy. I thought about what you could do. I was of the generation, the post-World War II generation that was very idealistic about world peace and world economy and and uh, how we were going to save the world through interacting. So I never succeeded in doing that. but. The impetus was idealism and public policy, and particularly on the international stage, where I haven't ended up. So uh, let me ask you because
1: you've been a great economist yourself, but around great economists for much of your life. you were president of the American Economics Association for a period, if I'm not wrong. Economists hold a tremendous amount of power in Washington. It's it's of the academic disciplines, I think, probably the most salient in, in terms mm-hmm. of influencing public policy. What is it that economists do that have given them them this position and and I guess to sharpen that a little bit more what separates how an economist thinks about a public policy question from how a history major or just any of us would think about a public policy question
2: I think it's because economists are trained to think systematically about choices now, people who go to business school do that too, but economics is all about choice. It's about limited resources and how do you best deploy them. Part of it, I think, is mythology about economics. I, it is thought to be more precise and accurate than it actually is. And I've often thought I was lucky because I was really interested in public policy. And in this day and age, I would probably have gone to a public policy school. And that would have been a mistake, at least at the time I was starting out. Because, as you noted, the economics degree gives you a certain prestige that other degrees don't.
1: Why do you think at this point you would end up in a public policy school rather than an economics program?
2: Because economics has drifted away from public policy. It's become very quantitative, very focused on statistical manipulation and mathematical theory. And that wasn't what I was particularly interested in. Do you think
1: that's been a mistake for the profession? Do you think Uh, that it has become overly invested in mathematical formalism?
2: I do. And I think it's diminished its influence for that reason. I think of myself now as a political economist, which is a phrase from way back in the Adam Smith Mill days. And I think it was right. If you're interested in applying economics... To public policy, then you have to call it something else like political economy. So
1: then why do you think that happened? I mean, I, I've spoken with a lot of influential economists who will, will, will voice some version of that critique or at least voice a version of the critique that, that suggests that the amount of models and math are offering an illusion of precision that is not actually true, that things are just being tucked away in assumptions and presumptions and, and methods So why do you think it happened? I don't seem to know that many people who are happy about it, and yet it is monolithic within the profession.
2: I think it happened because very smart people were attracted to manipulating mathematics and models. It's really fun, and it shows how smart you are if you can do that, and that's part of the reason we've attracted so many smart people to Wall Street, where I also think their talent is wasted. I'd love to have some of those really smart quants who are prospering on Wall Street apply their talents to something more important, like how do we alleviate poverty and that sort of thing.
1: So I feel like you can take this critique a little bit in two ways. One is that things are being hidden in the models that you need. So for instance, a a critique Paul Krugman makes sometimes, which I've always found persuasive, and it it speaks to the fall of political economists as as a group, is that it's very hard to model power. That isn't something that we really know how to math up very effectively. On the other hand, I think that the counter from folks in the profession, and I know many of them who would say this, is that the previous approach was too imprecise for all all the failures of, of, of the modeling and all the failures of trying to run natural experiments and that what you can study is limited by what you can find good data on, that a problem in the previous approach was that it was whatever you could make a good argument for. And there wasn't really a way to know if you were right or wrong, and that led to a lot of bad or at least sloppy thinking.
2: I'm not opposed to models. Models can be very useful. Models systematize the past. Mm-hmm. And things change. There, mm-hmm. you can't fit into a model the fact that some people suddenly get excited about the internet economy and are willing to invest in things that don't have very good business prospects. But just because they say "internet" in the title of the company or .dot com, they must be good investments. That's craziness. It's been true for centuries. We had the Dutch tulip bulb frenzy, but models can't capture that.
1: That's interesting. So you are, you're at Radcliffe, if I'm not wrong, for undergraduate.
2: Uh, No, I went to Bryn Mawr as an undergraduate and to Harvard Radcliffe for a PhD.
1: Got it. And so what brings you to Washington specifically?
2: Well, what initially brought me to Washington was a uh, husband who was graduating from law school (laughs) and uh, wanted to be in Washington. And it seemed like a very good place for me to be too. And when, when was this? Oh, this was in 1957.
1: So, what was your first job in Washington?
2: I came to Washington actually on a Brookings Institution fellowship because I hadn't finished my dissertation. And Brookings offered a fellowship for finishing your dissertation. And I was lucky enough to get one. So,
1: you take that fellowship. I assume you finished the dissertation.
2: I finished my dissertation. What was it on? Well, it actually was a part of a very sophisticated model or a forerunner, oh, so they got you too. forerunner of sophisticated models. My thesis advisor was Guy Orkut, who pioneered micro-simulation models. That is, models that actually simulate or try to simulate <laughs> the activity of families and households and companies and individual units rather than a macro forecasting model. So I got excited by that and I did a piece of it. It was actually a forecasting model on population growth and uh, it simulated marriage and divorce and Mm -hmm. births and deaths and uh, because you had to have a basic model of the population before you could feed it into the rest of his grand design. And
1: this is sort of the Keynesian age in Washington, yeah? Yes. How would you say the Dominant beliefs about public policy, really, but sort of the economic side of public policy were different then than they are now.
2: Well, I think we were very focused on the demand side of the economy, as Keynes was, because the problem that Keynes was addressing, at least in the 1930s, was inadequate demand the focus on the supply side came a little later. It came in a crazy form of extreme emphasis on lowering taxes being good for the whole economy. But it did serve to refocus the attention of economists on the supply side and productivity and How do you enhance that?
1: I want to keep going a little bit with your story because I really want to get to the Congressional Budget Office, but I want to talk about productivity for a minute. Are you following this debate about whether the productivity statistics are hiding some kind of great technological acceleration?
2: I don't think we know how to measure productivity very accurately, and certainly... Technological change is a challenge to anybody who's modeling uh, productivity, and we now all have uh, cell phones that we didn't have before that can do amazing things and computers that can do amazing things, and yet it isn't showing up in the standard productivity statistics. Now, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it's not making us more efficient. It's only giving us some consumer values that we aren't measuring very well. And maybe a higher accident rate of drivers who are distracted by these things. But it's an interesting debate. But the basic problem is how are we going to have a more productive workforce now that the population is aging?
1: Right. So you don't believe that what's happening is we are having that more productive workforce and we're somehow just I'm measuring it.
2: No, I don't.
1: Right. Uh, I think it's been interesting. I mean, I'm writing a piece on this, and so I'm, I'm a little bit unusually interested in it. But it has seemed to me that there is a really sharp and interesting dispute between our impression of how fast technology is moving around us and what the data tells us. And and Larry Summers came out at a big speech, I think it was at the World Bank or the IMF, and sort of made this point and said that there was a puzzle here that that he couldn't resolve. And the more I sort of look at it and and talk to people, the more it seems to me that these advances are are real and, and they're fantastic. But one, it's not clear that we are getting more of them in more areas than we were before. A lot of the technology advances are at least being deployed, seem to be around information technology, whereas before we're making cars and planes and whatever. And then two, that even if they are giving us consumer value, people's incomes aren't going up. GDP is not going up that fast. There's all these linked measures that are not moving in the way they need to move ultimately for people to be happy.
2: Well, that's right. And the question of under measurement of technology, I think, mainly relates to are people's incomes going up a little faster than the measured uh, mm-hmm. the statistics would tell us because they have all these gadgets in there, they right. have a higher standard of living and they're able to communicate with their relatives better. And that doesn't show up in any statistics.
1: But hasn't that always been true? I mean, at some point we yes. invented the telephone and it became possible for my father, who's a Brazilian immigrant. to call his family, immigrants like him. He came here after we had the telephone. But we never caught all of that in productivity statistics. I mean, the mismeasurement question has always been true. And I think the hard question to answer is, is there some reason to believe we're mismeasuring worse now than we were before?
2: Right. I think that is the question. And you get interesting dichotomies in the predictions. There are people now saying oh, productivity is going to be slow for a very long time. I'm not sure we know that because of the things we've been talking about. And at the same time, they're saying robots are going to take over the world and there is going to be nothing for people to do because these robots are going to be so productive. You can't have it both ways. And I think it's just kind of a silly debate. Economists are not very good at measuring changes in productivity growth. But my point at the moment is we know enough to know that there are a lot of things that we should be doing to increase productivity. So we don't need to know exactly what happens if we don't do them. We know we want higher productivity. We know that investments in skills and infrastructure and so forth will be a plus for that. So we better do it.
1: Right. And then there's the big the big immigration play around productivity, which if I remember, I, I think I heard that if you tally up a lot of the Obama administration's proposals for how they affect productivity, that I think half of the difference comes from immigration.
2: Well, immigration is good for the economy in lots of different ways. Productivity, but just having a younger workforce. Mm -hmm. Our big problem in the future is going to be that we're all living longer. I'm a good example of that. And we have this big baby boom generation that's going to be crowding into the retirement ages uh, pretty, uh, even as we speak, but over the next 20, 30 years. And we just need to be more productive to deal with that.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart so you can move or store it as needed and it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at borough.com slash box. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. com
1: slash box. So I want to move to talk a little bit about the Congressional Budget Office. And, and before people put down their, their phones or whatever they're listening to this on, um, the, the Congressional mm-hmm. Budget Office, I think, is is if I had to list the five institutions in Washington that have power outsized to their public profile that that matter more than people realize, it, this would be probably number one or two. And it is relatively new. It came out in the seventies, and Alice, you were involved in its creation. What was the context in which people began to think Congress needed its own budget scorekeeper? Why
2: did this idea come about? The context was the battle between President Richard Nixon, a Republican, and a Democratic Congress over the budget. Not surprisingly, President Nixon was not actually an arch conservative, but he, in typical Republican fashion for that period, certainly, was pushing higher defense and less domestic spending. Congress didn't agree with that. And then Nixon did something which is a real no-no if you are on the congressional side of things, and that was he impounded funds. That meant appropriated funds, appropriated in appropriations bills that he had signed, he decided not to spend And the Congress was furious. That was the impetus for the Congress doing something that they had talked about and wanted to do for a long time, and that was organize the budget-making on their side – in a similar way to the way the president organizes it. The president had, beginning in the 1920s, the what is now called the Office of Management and Budget, originally called the Bureau of the Budget, which helped him put together a budget proposal. And he, the Congress had nothing like that. They didn't even have an organized way of dealing with the budget as a whole. They had appropriations committees and subcommittees, and they had revenue committees, but they didn't look at the whole budget, and they realized they had to. So they passed the budget, now called the Budget Reform Act, but was originally called the Budget and Impoundment Act of 1974, which created budget committees in each house. And then they thought, we better have an agency on our side that does analysis of the budget and projections of the numbers. So they created the Congressional Budget
1: Office. And how did you come to run it? Because there's a, a great backstory there. It, it, you you were nominated, I believe, by the, the Senate side, yes?
2: Yes. They had never done this before. So here they had this new agency and they had to appoint a director And the statute said that the uh, appointment was by the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate on the advice of the budget committees. So the budget committees decided this is our prerogative. And they did a stupid thing. They had two search processes, one in each budget committee. And I was the candidate of the Senate. I was on the short list because I had written about the budget and done a lot of Washington Post uh, uh, articles and uh, op-eds about uh, the budget. So I was chosen by the Senate. The House had another candidate, very well qualified. And then they had two candidates and they didn't know what to do. And it was kind of a standoff. So how was it resolved? Well, it was resolved in a really funny way. The chairman of the House Budget Committee, uh, the late Al Ullman, was quite adamantly in favor of their candidate and was also quite sexist, which was normal in those days. And he had been heard to say that over his dead body was a woman going to run this new organization. So there was this stalemate. But it was resolved because Wilbur Mills, who was the very powerful chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, got into trouble in a spectacular way. Very smart man, but a heavy drinker. And he had a relationship apparently with an exotic dancer named Fanny Fox. And one night on Capitol Hill, Fanny leaped out of his car and into the Tidal Basin. And she didn't drown. The tidal basin is very shallow. They got her out. But that was the end of Wilbur Mills' career. And Al Alman was ranking on Ways and Means. So he moved up to the chairmanship. And that left Brock Adams, who was from the state of Washington. He hadn't been part of this process. So he didn't care. And he just said to Senator Muskie, who was my sponsor, if you want Rivlin, that's okay.
1: Huh. And so now you are in the position of setting up this agency, which has no existing culture, no history. It hasn't really been anything like it. And it ends up evolving in a very different way from the Office of Management and Budgets. So I'm curious, what were the decisions you made early on that you think were consequential in what the Congressional Budget Office ultimately turned out to be?
2: We thought it was very important, I thought, and the budget chairman did too, to have a nonpartisan office. That's what the law said, and we wanted it to be aggressively nonpartisan. So, first, the budget chairman protected me as I hired people. I was allowed to hire the best person I could possibly find for the various uh, jobs on the staff without political influence, and that was very important. And secondly, I decided that it was important not to make recommendations— always to give alternatives, to say you could do this or you could do that, here's what we think it would cost if you did A, here's what we think it would cost if you did B, here are the effects of these different programs, but not to make a choice. Because once you make a choice, then it looks like you're favoring one side or the other. So I was very strong in defending that position. And I frequently got in front of a congressional committee that would say, ah, now, uh, Director Rivlin, I know that you're nonpartisan and you have these options, but what do you really think? And I had to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, but I can't answer that question.
1: There's an interesting line being walked here, because on the one hand, what the Congressional Budget Office is doing is somebody sends the agency a health care bill. And the agency makes choices. It creates its models. It decides what evidence to look at. It decides what... Parts of it will it thinks will work and which parts won't and sends back a decision. And in that way, it feels to me, and it, it's a tricky thing because on the one hand, it, it works so hard to go by the best evidence. On the other hand, there are real disputes over whether electronic health records will save money, over what kinds of payment reforms will actually work. And so it ends up certainly not making choices, but very much structuring what kinds of reforms will be given... Credibility in terms of budget process, and as such, ends up, I think, in powerful ways structuring what people can and can't do. How do you think about that line?
2: Well, you're right that it has to make choices. The staff has to make choices, and the director has to (laughs) defend them about what kind of evidence you use on what a bill will cost, or particularly a big important thing like health care reform. There are lots of choices to be made, and you're looking at the evidence on past programs, but there may be nothing like what the Congress is proposing to do, Mm -hmm. so you're making inferences from this information about other similar programs, and that's very difficult and people can dispute whether they do the right thing or not, the... Result is that a CBO analysis or a cost estimate is often very controversial. But I used to think if we're getting criticism from both sides, from both the Republicans and the Democrats, then we're probably okay. And I think that's still true. The CBO does get criticized for its estimates and people think they're not right for one reason or another but they draw criticism from both sides. Well,
1: it's always interesting to me. I mean, you later went and led the Office of Management and Budget under Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. And when the Clinton Healthcare Bill came out, the Congressional Budget Office under Robert Reichauer released a score that's very, very controversial in which they said that all premiums would be counted on the budget. And so it basically, you know, made it, it was a little bit of a distinction, I think, without a difference in some ways. But in terms of what it made the cost of the program look like, even though it was never going to cost more one way or the other, it was game changing. Or many people felt it was game changing. You were at OMB and, and felt they had made the wrong decision. And I'm curious how it felt to you watching the agency you created make such a consequential decision on something that you were working so hard on that, that was so devastating to the effort.
2: I had at least two reactions to this. I was very proud of the CBO for uh, hanging in there or doing what they thought was right, proud of Bob Reichauer for sticking Mm -hmm. to his guns. At the same time, I questioned their decision. The operative thing was whether, basically, whether a premium was a tax, and they thought it was. I thought it could be argued differently. But it was influential in the perception of the cost of the uh, Clinton health plan. And it went down not exclusively for that reason, but partly.
1: In a world where we have the Congressional Budget Office, where we have this much more mathed up approach to economics, these public policy schools, do you think that the conversation around public policy in Washington is a lot more sophisticated than when you came here?
2: Yes, I think it is much more sophisticated. We do make an attempt to project what something will cost, often turns out differently than the projectors think. But that's an important thing to do. When I first came to Washington, I actually worked in the Johnson administration. And there in the late 60s, we were sending up a slew of bills to the Congress, often without any analysis of what they would cost in the long run, uh, what the effects might be. The idea that you could uh, attach credible numbers to these things was uh, was very new. So my second question on that is, okay,
1: so our policy analysis is much more sophisticated. Do you think our policymaking is actually better than it was in the 1950s or the 1960s?
2: I think it's more informed, but not necessarily better. The uh, The problem now is that we aren't making much policy at all because our political system has become so polarized that uh, there's almost nothing that the two parties can agree on, especially in an election year. But if they do sit down to talk about what should we do on some big issue like investment and infrastructure, for example, they will have at their disposal much better information about what things will cost and what taxes would have to change to pay for it and things like that than they had 30 years ago. To stand on that question for a minute, because it's something that I think about and to some
1: degree worry about a lot, because a lot of my, at least my journalism work, is focused on trying to interpret the best evidence and trying to relay CBO's analysis of the Paul Ryan budget plan and, and, and on and on. And then, you know, sometimes I try to step back and ask myself, is Obamacare, for all its sophistication, for all the complex efforts to bend the cost curve that are embedded in it... Is it really a much better designed program than Medicare? Or are there ways in which we are getting, and I recognize that the two come about in very different political equilibriums with very different Congresses and what was possible is very different. But is there ways in which we are getting cleverer that can actually backfire? Are there there ways in which would make policy, I think it was just a little bit more straightforward at times, and maybe some of those programs have been more durable and more effective because they were not quite so complex.
2: I think one can argue that, especially from the liberal side. Take Medicare. It seemed like a good idea after many, many years of trying on the part of the liberals to cover all seniors with a public health insurance plan. Nobody had a really good idea what it would cost. It just seemed like a really good idea whose time had come, and they had the votes to pass it. It turned out to be much more expensive than anybody thought, and over the years, adjustments were made in various ways. But I think you could argue that if anybody knew what Medicare was going to cost, it might not have uh, passed. Similarly, early childhood education, Head Start was based on, to the extent that there was evidence, it was based on one study, the Perry Preschool Project, which showed benefits, long-term benefits for intensive preschool. And everybody said, okay, all the liberals said, we'll do that, we'll enact a national program on this basis. Could you do that now? I'm not sure. People for example, have been saying we ought to have a universal preschool program. I think that would be a good idea. I think the evidence is there, but the evidence is arguable. People are studying Oklahoma, which has Mm -hmm. universal preschool, and saying, is it really worth it? And in the old days... People just thought little children are important and let's do something. We don't have to have all the evidence that uh, it's really worth it.
1: Well, and head start. I mean, whatever you think of it, it has not shown the effects that the Perry Preschool Program did.
2: No, because when you have a large national program, you may not be doing all of it very well and also the people who were originally the proponents of Head Start had an exaggerated idea of what could happen. You could put four-year-olds in school for half a day and teach them colors and letters, and it was going to change their whole lives, even if their families were still poor and they were still going back into not very good kindergarten programs.
1: Do you think we ask in this country too much of education to be our answer to almost all inequities or inequalities, do you think that what you just brought up, the tendency to say, okay, these kids might be coming from an area that is unsafe in houses that have too much lead with parents who you know are never around, but if we can just get them a good teacher, that'll be enough, or at least is often the implicit assumption of the conversation. Do you think that we ask too much of education to be the leveler?
2: Yes, But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try very hard to have very good schools, especially in low-income neighborhoods. But it's not the only thing to be done. And there are lots of examples in education, as well as in healthcare, where if you were looking at the whole circumstances of the child or the family, you'd do a variety of things all at once. And that would help them learn better, be healthier, be safer.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com
1: slash gray area. You and I spoke quite a bit while Obamacare was being drafted and, Mm -hmm. and passed. Later on, working with Paul Ryan, you helped create a plan that in some ways brought the structure of Obamacare, proposed to bring the structure of Obamacare to Medicare. We're now, whatever, three years into the Affordable Care Act actually being a real thing. How do you think it's going?
2: I think it's going remarkably well, actually, considering that it was a big national complicated program, that we had never done what Obamacare promised to do, namely subsidize low-income people to buy insurance on an exchange. We were... Hoping that competition would be helpful in holding down costs, giving people a choice was a good thing. That was a complicated thing to do. It still is. But millions of people are getting their health care paid for that uh, wouldn't have. And it's a work in progress. We're learning how to make it better. Some people think it would have been better to say, well, let's blow up the whole system and have a new one and do uh, Medicare for all or a single payer system. I don't think that was realistic at the time. About half of the American public gets their health care through their employer. Most people like that system. It might have been better to do something else 30, 40, 50 years ago, but we didn't. And Americans don't like change very much. So the idea of blowing up the employer system and replacing it with some big deal thing that is run centrally from Washington is not very attractive to most Americans. So we didn't do that. We patched the existing system That's always more complicated Mm -hmm. than doing something simple. But I think given that it was patching the existing system and filling in a hole for people who couldn't afford health insurance on the open market, it's worked extremely well.
1: So let me ask you about a specific part of it. The part that economists I know, including you, were very excited about was the construction of insurance exchanges um, Mm -hmm. where you would have – transparent, price-based competition between a number of insurers. You would have a lot of consumers to, who would be incentivized to shop for the best bargain, so they would actually be pushing good insurers to offer them a better product. I think that there are a lot of ways you can look at the market right now, but, but one thing that's happening in an ongoing way is we've seen lower enrollment in the exchanges than we thought. There's been more Medicaid enrollment, but lower insurance exchange enrollment. Right. And also, I think you're seeing that Competition, as appealing as it is in theory, in some ways scares people in practice. Recently, United Healthcare is pulling out of the exchanges. And rather than people saying, great competition, sometimes the weakest players fall, you're seeing a certain lot of pundits treat it as... An unbelievable, unforeseen, disastrous event. So how do you feel that the exchanges are going? Do you think that what the economists hoped has happened is happening? Or do you think we're seeing that maybe competition in the health insurance market is not as promising as we had hoped?
2: I think it's working quite well, and the furor over United pulling out was mostly, I think, a tempest in the teapot. Other major insurers are hanging in there and seem ready to expand into that gap, and United was not a major player in any case. I think most of the people who are jumping on this as an example that, aha, it doesn't work, were not enthusiasts of uh, Obamacare to begin with. I haven't heard a credible alternative plan from Republicans who like to say Obamacare is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. But I think it would, again, be quite complicated, quite difficult to administer whatever it is they're proposing, perhaps refundable credits for health insurance. That would have a lot of the same
1: Problems. Well, Republicans are now led in the House by by Paul Ryan, who's somebody that you have worked on healthcare plans with, and I've I've spoken mm-hmm. with him a number of times about healthcare. He's a guy who really enjoys talking about thinking about healthcare, and he had himself a healthcare plan for some time with a number of other members of of the House Republican Conference, and I think it's been telling that despite pretty repeated promises. He has not come out really with a direct Obamacare replacement plan. He's continued to say he will, but it hasn't happened. And I'm curious why you think that is.
2: Well, right. And his original plan was a Medicare reform plan. But
1: he also, before all this, Mm -hmm. he had his own non-Medicare health reform plan. The one you guys worked on was a Medicare reform plan. Yeah.
2: I don't know. I think that Paul Ryan is a very intelligent policy wonk, and he was quite inconsistent in being in favor of competition among health plans for Medicare, which was the plan we were working on, mm-hmm. but not thinking that Obamacare, which was essentially the same thing, was workable. I used to tease him about that, and I never really got a good answer as to what the he thought the uh, distinction was. But I believe that a conservative, and he is a conservative, who wants to fill the gap that we have between the public programs and the employer-based programs has got to come up with something like Obamacare, though it might be called something else.
1: I remember talking to folks like you and and folks saying, Obamacare is the beginning. It is a platform. It is something that gives us a a structure in which then to make improvements, to add new features, to figure out what is working and what is not working. At this point, if you were Queen, what would you add? What would you remove? What would you take out? What would Obamacare 2.0 be? Or Rivlin Care 1.0b, given what we've learned in the past three years?
2: I would work on improving what we've got, making the choices easier for people to understand, having the insurance providers compete more vigorously. I think we do have some problem of uh, consolidation in the insurance market, and giving more assistance to people as they choose and more help in how to use health insurance. One of the problems with the uh, exchanges is the population that they were designed for was by definition people who didn't have insurance. Insurance is complicated. They didn't know much about it. What's a co-insurance? What's this deductible thing? Often people chose because the premium was very low and then realized afterwards, oh, I've got a very high deductible and it isn't actually helping me pay my routine bills. So some more help with choosing and and choosing again. Obamacare offers the opportunity if you've had a, a year in a plan that didn't quite meet your needs uh, to choose another one. But people do need some assistance in that.
1: Um, to some degree, the subject of, of Paul Ryan, you've worked with, some of the most, I think, interesting and, and certainly important political figures of our of our times. Mm-hmm. So you were, were worked in the Office of Management and Budget with Bill Clinton. You were on the president President Obama's fiscal reform commission. You've, right. you've done work with Paul Ryan. What is the difference between the way Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Paul Ryan, and Hillary Clinton think about policy when they are presented with choices
2: they need to make? That's a good set of very smart people. Who think about the consequences and the choices and I haven't worked much with Hillary Clinton in that situation except very early in her first ladyship when she Mm -hmm. was uh, working on the health plan that failed that she set up in much too complicated a way but and the plan itself was too complicated but I think she is also very smart and and does make good choices The problem for Paul Ryan at the moment is he's got a bear by the tail in the Republican House and uh, he has to balance what he might think is the right thing to do with uh, bringing along his colleagues and that's really hard and we've lost the feeling in both parties I think. Mm that compromise is necessary, that our constitutional system was set up to make compromise necessary. You can't get anything done in the Congress unless you're willing to make compromises both between the two houses, across the party lines, and with the president. And I think uh, we're likely to be living with that for a long time. And we better get back to the idea that compromise and negotiation is part of the policy process you can't just stand there in your corner and saying i'm right and i'm not going to compromise with you because you're wrong that's
1: just not productive and how about bill clinton and barack obama what is the difference in the way they think about policy
2: i think of the circumstances more than the personalities and i haven't worked closely with president obama But it was very hard for President Obama to put forward policies in the face of a Republican-controlled Congress that wanted him to fail, that wanted to be against anything just because he brought it forward. Bill Clinton was not actually in that situation. He faced a Republican House for six of his eight years— but it was a house that was willing to cut deals and he was willing to cut deals and we got some things done and some of them were passed by bipartisan votes and that's something you don't have in the Congress anymore. And how
1: about Bill Clinton as a, as a sort of manager of policy processes? I'm, I'm curious what that experience was, was like.
2: It was a fascinating experience and especially at the beginning of the Clinton administration when I was there, he was a very focused himself on participating in the policy making process. And we had endless meetings in which policies were debated, all kinds of policies, but initially the first Clinton budget. I think we had 17 meetings in the Roosevelt Room in which everybody had their say. And uh, it was kind of an amazing experience to see a president sitting there participating in such a uh, lively and contentious discussion about uh, policy. I think he was using it as a learning experience. He'd been governor of Arkansas, but he hadn't uh, had Mm -hmm. to deal with the defense budgets and other things that he had to deal with in this context. But he just loves policy debate and, if if anything, I thought at the time (laughs) that uh, he didn't cut it off early enough. Hillary, who was sometimes in the room, is more disciplined about that. She would tend to move it on and say, you know, Bill, we need a decision here and move on to the next (laughs) subject. It was very hard for him to do that.
1: Yeah, that is also something I've heard about the difference between them. And also, it's a difference a lot of people who worked for Bill Clinton and Obama say is a big difference, that Obama is a very, he runs meetings very crisply, like he wants to, to hear it and then move.
2: Yes, that's true. And it comes across in his public persona also. Right. He's he's precise. He's lawyer-like. He wants to hear the arguments, but he wants to get on to a decision.
1: So let me ask you a couple more more disconnected, rapid-fire questions. What is something that you believe is true about public policy that most people think is false?
2: Well, let me come back to my compromise thing. I think some people think there's a right and wrong about public policy. And even my fellow economists sometimes say is... Is in your experience in Washington, do the right economic thing or do they listen to politics? And I think that's a silly question. Politics is how we make policy in this country and it should be, but you need to be informed about mm-hmm. what the economics of the situation seem to be. We were talking a little bit ago about productivity and, and innovation.
1: What are the spaces in the economy that that you think have the potential to really change in the next 30 years, right? When we look back in the last 30 years, we talk about really the internet and the rise of computers as a constant everywhere device. What do you think will define the next 30 years, if you had to guess?
2: I think we haven't finished the computer revolution and we haven't brought it to as many low-income people as we need to It isn't just the computer revolution. It is higher skills and decision-making skills and uh, other things that, uh, that people need to get along in this world. But I think the challenge of the next 30 years is going to be finding meaningful and important work that is rewarded well, that is not manufacturing, we're idealizing the manufacturing economy as if making things were the most important thing. I think the kinds of services that we're going to need, especially for young children and for older people, are extremely important in the quality of life. And yet at the moment, they're not well rewarded and not well taught. Do you think that
1: is a... Effect of the decline in unions?
2: It may have something to do with that, but actually, unions flourished in the days of heavy industry and manufacturing when wages in those industries were rising rapidly. And unions uh, could get a lot of benefits for their members. And they often went too far, in my opinion. They priced us out of the world market by uh, insisting on higher wages and higher health care and higher retirement benefits than the industries could ultimately afford.
1: But so then, if it isn't going to be unions, what is going to take the service sector jobs, and particularly child care and, and, and nursing care, and make them into highly paid jobs where do workers get where do workers get enough power th- to bargain
2: I think unions may be part of it but it's also got to be the education of those professions has got to to change so that we actually train people not just to be custodians of children or old people but actually to make their lives better and that that's a skill uh, so uh, I want to make sure I understand, because I think this is an interesting
1: point. So you're saying that the reason they're not highly paid right now is that the people in them aren't skilled enough, that that there is a, a lack of, that we have not quite leveled up the profession so that the service it is offering is of enough value to the people who are paying for it.
2: That's what I'm saying. And I don't know exactly how to accomplish that, but I think that's the challenge.
1: But wasn't it the case? I mean, you, you talked about the sort of manufacturing halcyon days. And and something that I always think about with that is that what we created there was a way for, you know, often relatively low skilled male, typically workers, to have jobs that paid a, a middle class wage. And while I don't want to overread that experience, I don't want to be... infected by nostalgia here. It makes me wonder if the issue here is really skills or it is the power to bargain. Because I mean, there's no doubt even now, whatever people are getting out of it, that they need these services. Just there are enough people who will do them at low enough prices that they don't need to pay that much. And I, I guess it's a little clear to me what the mechanism by which education would change that would be.
2: Well, I think that is that is the challenge, and the answer is probably both. I mean, you do you do need the employees to be able to uh, to bargain, but their bargaining power will be enhanced if they're actually offering a skill that people need and that makes people's lives better.
1: All right, and 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 then here's and we've my... got to
2: create the demand for that,
1: right? And, and so then here's my my final question, which you ask everybody on this on this show. What are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend others read?
2: Well, one that influenced me a lot is uh, Daniel Yankilovich's book, actually two books, one called Coming to Public Judgment, which is about how the public actually makes decisions. And it's not all on the basis of analysis. Come mm-hmm. back to your earlier point. And the other one was called something about the power of Of dialogue. I think we have become a nation committed to debate, which is I win, you lose, rather than to dialogue, which is how do you find common ground?
1: And then one more book.
2: And uh, one more book. Well, let me take a recent one. I think Robert Gordon has done a very interesting analysis of how productivity change happened over the last century. I don't think he's necessarily right About the future, I don't think we know how to predict productivity change, but it's a very interesting analysis of what had happened.
1: This is a rise and fall of American growth, I believe. Right,
2: something like that.
1: I I had Bill Gates on this podcast a while back, Mm -hmm. and he said he believed that book would be looked at like the the book, The Promised Peace in Our Time, right before World War II. Uh,
2: Well, maybe 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 that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a very well-researched history book where I part company with Robert Gordon is on the predictions of what will happen because economists have a very poor track record on predicting technological change or productivity change, which is probably the point that Bill Gates was making as well.
1: Alice Rivlin, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Alice Rivlin. Thank you so much to her for for joining. Thank you to you for listening. As always, please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, which I do along with my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. It is the jam. And it is, if you like this episode, The Weeds is all policy all the time. So you will like that very much. So with that, uh, thank you very much and I'll see you next week.